Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! And welcome to episode 33 of One Step Beyond. My name is Tony Fletcher, a music and media type by trade, an athletic traveller type by choice. And if you're a regular listener to this show and you think it's been a longer gap than usual since the last episode, well, hey, you're not wrong. Unfortunately, for me at least, I spent some time at the beginning of August in ICU a.k.a. the intensive care unit. I had something happen to me that, you know, does happen to people, unexpectedly and often without plausible explanation. It was something that for a lot of people can be either life-threatening and or come with a serious risk of permanent damage. And while it turned out in hindsight that my own life was never actually in danger, I didn't know that initially, and nor, to be honest, did the medical professionals, who took no chances in ensuring my safety for which I am and will be eternally grateful. So for a while there, it was scary. In the end, I only spent four nights in the hospital, but I was sent home with considerable lingering after effects and a hefty and physically heavy regimen of medications that while ultimately benefiting my health, sapped my energy level as much as anything. My memory of August 2021 will be of sleeping a lot. Running concurrently to this scare, though running is not something I've gotten to do enough of recently, I've been prepping for a book about to come out, and I was determined to get through a show I was directing for our local rock academy, all the more so as it was a tribute to Stax Records, the Memphis-based soul label that was so influential and successful in the 1960s and early 1970s, and which has been such a part of my own professional life these last few years, providing the subject matter for my previous two books. All in all, I'm sure you'll understand why I had to put One Step Beyond aside for a few weeks. Now, I'm not reticent to talk about what happened to me, given that I'm neither embarrassed nor ashamed about the incident. And while I haven't gone public with the details as yet, I have certainly shared it with a few people in private. And I plan to do so more generally on the next episode of One Step Beyond. Because as far as the audience for this show goes and the general ethos we promote, there are perhaps some lessons to be learned. That said... It takes time to digest something as sudden and potentially serious as this. I was warned by a specialist and by others who've been through their own similar misadventures that I'd experienced my own form of PTSD as I subsequently came to grips with what had happened to me. And they were right. Certainly, the incident provided an opportunity to reflect and take stock. And for that, I am also grateful. I'm recording this particular introduction on Wednesday, September 1st, one day after having a follow-up repeat of the aforementioned invasive test, and while the results are already known and I have the all clear, yay, along with a promise that statistically this will never happen to me again, double yay, I'm going to wait for another consultation. The assurance that I can get back to my physical activities on a level I'd previously been enjoying them, and for further personal perspective before I figure how I want to tell this story. Because at the end of the day, I am a storyteller. It's more or less how I make my living. 
Here on One Step Beyond, I usually invite a guest onto the show to tell their own story, and occasionally I've stepped forward to read my own short stories, usually travel ones, as originally committed to the digital form of pen and paper in my capacity as a writer. So what I'm going to do in this particular episode of One Step Beyond is tie all these threads together. I'm going to share with you a short story of my own, one initially written down in long form. And while this story is not about positively engaging with the world outside our door, I guess it does involve taking a step outside your comfort zone and enriching your life, as the other tagline goes. After all, it's not every 17-year-old who gets the chance to interview Paul McCartney for three hours, especially at the point back in early 1982 the Macca had barely been heard from publicly since the assassination of his former Beatles bandmate John Lennon on that tragically bookmarked day of December 8th, 1980. That 17-year-old was me, as you may have figured, and the story you are about to hear, The Day I Met Macca, ties in to two separate book projects I have going on. The first is the one I mentioned just a moment ago. It's called The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine That Grew Up, 1977 to 1986, and it's published by Omnibus Press on September 23rd in the UK, and November 25th in the USA. The Paul McCartney interview, referred to in the short story you're about to hear, was published in Jamming, which I started back at school in the late 1970s. And the interview, as it appeared in those magazines, is itself republished in this compendium, this new book. In fact, if you squint at the logo for this particular episode of One Step Beyond on your phone, you should be able to see me holding up a reprint of the McCartney interview from a hot-off-the-presses copy, of the best of jamming. The second book project this story relates to is the sequel to my memoir, Boy About Town, which detailed those formative years growing up in South London in the 70s, as a kid transformed by punk and new wave. The Day I Met Macca is an edited extract of a full chapter from that sequel. The book itself is not quite finished, so neither a publication date nor a title has yet been set. And the reason you're hearing the story right now is because back in the middle of June, I got an email from Jimmy Buff at Radio Kingston, the station here in the Hudson Valley that broadcasts every episode of One Step Beyond, indeed commissioned the initial mini-documentary on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Jimmy was writing to note that it would be McCartney's 79th birthday, that coming Friday, June 18th, and knowing something of the fact I'd met and interviewed Macker in my teens, but not the details, asked if I could talk about that meeting on air, after which he'd play a couple of Sir Paul's better-known Beatles compositions. I, in turn, informed Buff that I would go one better, that I'd written an entire chapter of this as-yet-unpublished book about the occasion, and I'd put it to tape for Radio Kingston to play exclusively in honour of McCartney's birthday. Since then, I've been saving this story not so much for a future one step beyond as for publication of the Jamming Compendium. In fact, and I hope this is exciting news, I'm about to launch a short podcast series specifically to coincide with the publication of this book. I do plan to be back soon enough with One Step Beyond, as you know, and hopefully love it. First to focus on my ICU sojourn and how it relates to One Step Beyond. And beyond that, with an episode about the virtual race that five of us did together for the Escarpment Trail Run back at the end of July for which I brought my Zoom recorder along and focused on the adventures that day of Ryan McCann, who was making his debut distance trail run. I figure that episode should follow on nicely from the recent ones about the Manitou's Revenge Ultramarathon. For now, however, let's take a detour. For context, it'll help if you know that the Jam were pretty much Britain's biggest rock band at the time, 
and their frontman Paul Weller, widely considered spokesman for the younger generation, whether he wanted that mantle or not. Otherwise, I am sure you can join the various cultural dots. So, put on your finest retro wear, moose up your hair, step into your nearest time machine and join me as we head back to 1982 and prepare to go. One step beyond! Paul Weller, frontman of the jam, my mate these days, the one I was running the record company with, was in the control room at Air Studios, listening back to the latest mix that day in January 1982. A well-dressed, trim and generally unassuming middle-aged man walked in and made himself right at home. Weller recognised him, which was just as well as the visitor walked right up alongside him and nodded along to the music like they were best friends themselves. I really like what you've got going here, he said after a minute. It's a groove. Or words to that effect. Paul Weller seemed to appreciate the compliment. The town called Malice, Precious, Double A Side was being lined up for release, but hadn't yet gone to radio. It was too early to tell if the band had rediscovered its mojo. After a couple more pleasantries, the middle-aged man left almost as quickly as he'd arrived, at which point it occurred to me that I recognised him. We'd never met. Of that, I was certain. But there was something familiar about his voice, especially the accent. It was from Liverpool. Scouse was not a dialect you could ever mistake. Then it hit me. I'd just been in the company of a Beatle. A real, living, songwriting, singing, performing Beatle. Weller clocked my stunned expression. Was that Paul McCartney? I asked. He's recording in the room next door, replied Paul, grinning sheepishly. He keeps stopping in for a chat. I got the sense that Weller couldn't believe it either. He'd been born in 1959, which had made him a pretty good age to idolise the Beatles in real time. And with the Jam's last album, Sound Effects, he'd done a pretty good job of capturing that idolisation on tape. So to have his childhood idol now regularly pop into the studio, sit down alongside him or stand up and pay a few compliments, the older Paul praising the younger, was probably a bigger dream come true than the couple of number one singles the Jam had enjoyed these last two years. I found myself thinking out loud. Oh, I'd love to interview him for jamming. It had been six months since the last issue of my fanzine. I was desperate to keep it in print. So were the many subscribers who wrote frequently asking what had happened to their money. Weller had even been on my case about it. There was primarily the workload of our record label, and that of my band admittedly, and of having a girlfriend at last, that had held me back. An interview with Paul McCartney, though. If that couldn't provide an incentive to get busy once more on the typewriter, what would? You should ask him, said Weller. I'm sure he'll say yes. I didn't have to. Minutes later, McCartney walked back in. George Martin, the former Beatles producer and the proprietor of Air, was producing his album, and almost 20 years after the pair first started working together with Love Me Do, Macca hardly had to babysit the process. Paul, said the younger one to the older, would you do an interview for me mate's fanzine? Weller swivelled his head, gestured towards me. McCartney's head swivelled likewise to the 17-year-old on the sofa. What's it called? he asked amicably, speaking directly to me. Jamming, I stuttered. Do you have one you can show me? Fortunately, rare was the day I ever failed to carry a copy or two around with me in whatever plastic bag passed from my briefcase. I scrambled to pull out the latest issue, 
the one with madness and killing joke and another pretty face and well other than madness it was unlikely mccartney had heard of any of the acts i handed it over and mccartney flicked through it he seemed impressed you're free tomorrow he asked now i was a beatles fan too of course I'd spent a good chunk of the pre-punk era collecting their 10 years on reissued picture sleeve singles with my mum. And after John Lennon's cruel murder, I'd worn down the copy of Sgt. Pepper's that my dad had left behind upon moving out all those years ago. Like most of us adjusting to a world without Lennon, I considered John the more rebellious of the Beatles songwriting duo, and by extension Paul to be the more traditional, the more staid. Whatever mistakes Lennon had made in his life, releasing My Love Kintyre, was not amongst them. Still, back at home, I dug into those reissued 1960s singles we owned. We Can Work It Out had been a favourite of my mother's, and that was one of McCartney's tunes, was it not? And hadn't I obsessed over lovely Rita Meter Maid during my recent Sgt. Pepper's phase? I mean, I didn't own any of his Solar or Wings records, but I had enough knowledge to get through the interview. I called my friend Anthony, the closest jamming had to a photographer of Figured he would probably cancel work the next day to go meet a living, breathing beetle. I was right. Soon after Anthony and I arrived at air the next morning, and I explained that for once I was not here to hang out with the jam, but rather to interview Paul McCartney. Macca came out of the studio, invited me into a side room, sat down next to me on the sofa, and promptly began chatting away. There were no publicists present in the room, no assistance of any kind, it was just me and the Beatle. McCartney hadn't given proper interviews since Lennon's murder just over a year ago, and you couldn't blame him. Not only had he suffered the death of his former close friend and creative partner, one half of the biggest cultural phenomenon ever to hit humankind, but he had been widely reviled in the aftermath. It was as if people held Paul McCartney personally responsible, or that the wrong ex-Beatle had been assassinated. Add to that the genuine fear that surely occupied his every waking moment. Like, if John Lennon can be shot dead on the street, then surely I can too. And you could be forgiven for assuming he'd be surrounded by a phalanx of bodyguards at all times. But here we were, one-on-one and entirely alone. Paul started by asking if he could get a copy of the interview tape. The last person he asked, uh, apparently, had refused. He said, journalists never give up their sources, which I thought was odd. What do you think about that? Well, I stay away from journalism, I replied, trumpeting a kind of fanzine cliche as a cop-out. This, meaning our interview, uh, this has got nothing to do with journalism. I promised to make him a copy of my cassette, all the same. I asked how often he did interviews, and he readily admitted it was usually when you've got a record coming out. Becomes like a system, becomes a bit boring actually. I prefer doing it the other way, just when anybody good asks you. It's better to try and break it up. So here we are, breaking it up. That was my cue to get properly started, and I promptly approached my subject, much as I had the only other 1960s rock star I'd interviewed, Pete Townsend, by starting at the beginning and hoping I'd make it to the end before I overstayed my welcome. McCartney, perhaps because he was happy to break it up, or because he hadn't been worn down by interviews of late, or because I was still basically a kid, just 17, or because I didn't work for one of the tabloids, or because I (laughs) refused to admit to anything to do with journalism, and probably because I couldn't possibly have ulterior financial motives, answered my questions gamely, as if he'd never heard them before. 
Frequently, he touched me or nudged me to emphasise a point. Often it seemed as if he wasn't quite sure he was Paul McCartney. When you're 15, you think, I wish I could write a few songs, he said. That was my dream. So somebody telling me I'm the one who's done it the most in the world. There being various entries in the Guinness Book of Records marking McCartney as the most successful composer in pop and his Yesterday as the most covered song of all time. Then all in all, it's a slight freak out. As much as anything, he seemed determined to relate. In the first few minutes, he referenced both the jam and the Sex Pistols, suggesting that his first impressions of rock and roll were probably not dissimilar to mine upon hearing my own modern music. He wanted to remind me that he too was once a mere fan. I was a kid outside the stage door, he said, of waiting for the crew cuts at the Liverpool Empire in the 1950s. They were just great fellas. I walked from the stage door to the hotel with them just chatting. As a result, he said, I've always wanted to be like that with fans. He talked about how parents reacted to his generation, the first teenagers, the first Brits to be affected by rock and roll and to dress accordingly. They worried about us all becoming hoodlums, he said, and then he quickly segued into his own concerns as a parent. When my kids started going punk, I suddenly realised what my parents had thought, like, is she going to get onto glue or something? If I give her total freedom and say, yeah, go with the fashions, is that going to mean I'm pushing her onto heroin? I always swore I was going to let them do whatever they wanted to. I couldn't relate to being a parent, so we talked instead about the fate in Walton in July 1957, where he first saw John Lennon fronting local skiffle group, the Quarrymen. He had his check shirt on, said Paul, looking good, and he had a bit of a crew cut with a little quiff, a bit like yours. I was tempted to turn around to see who he might be comparing to a teenage John Lennon, but I already knew we were the only people in the room. McCartney certainly knew how to make people feel good about themselves in his company. He reminisced about the Beatles' camaraderie. We'd be in a little Bedford van, and we'd be going up the motorway, and the windscreen would blow out. A stone would hit it, and it was so freezing, with the windscreen out so cold, that we had to lie on top of each other, the four of us. Just get a body heat sandwich. The image of John, Paul, George and Ringo lying on top of each other in the back of a van would likely have provoked many an erotic fantasy in the 1960s, though I suspected I'd still think twice before I got in such a sandwich with any of my bandmates, let alone all of them. Paul talked about Beatlemania, or rather he paused for a solid 10 seconds when I asked him to describe it. Manic, he eventually said, wistfully perhaps, as if he wouldn't have minded being able to experience it from the outside. I asked him his favourite Beatles records, and after naming what he admitted were the big ones, Yesterday, Strawberry Fields and Hey Jude, he cited She Said, She Said, and a crazy B-side, as he called it, called You Know My Name, Look Up The Number. It's just an insane track, and what I remember from the session and all the laughs, we were just in pleats making that record. I didn't know the expression, but I took it as a further pang of nostalgia. He admitted that he couldn't really explain why the Beatles split. The only thing I always know is that once you've got a team, there's an inevitable breakup of that team. And he went into a lengthy defence of his decision to sue the other Beatles as the only way he could sue their latter-day manager, Alan Klein. He reflected again on his fortune in life. I don't understand it at all. All I think is, well, it's my job. It's what I ended up doing in life and I like doing it, so I don't see any reason to stop. My C90 cassette lid, though, 
It had run its course and the record button on my mum's portable recorder popped up to announce as much. That's not a bad way to end the interview, Paul chimed, relieved no doubt that he could now get back to his aforementioned job. Nervously, I pointed out I was barely halfway through my notes and that I'd uh, bought another C90 with me. Equally nervously, Macca agreed to continue. We carried on talking about his career and eventually we circled back around to the subject of parenting and family and home. What he seemed most proud of after all these years was not necessarily the fame, the fortune, the accolades or the sales, but that he'd held on to some sort of normality. Would you believe I've got four kids and we live in a two-bedroom house, he asked, telling a story about the promoter Harvey Goldstein mistaking said house for a guest lodge. That freaks me out, whether it freaks you out or not. I've had chauffeurs, and I hated being driven, he continued. I've had living couples which I've hated because they take over. It's like living with your bloody auntie or something. While admitting that he did use his money for private flights when they made sense, he insisted that I'm not really into flash stuff. I'm not a jewellery man. I'm not a big house man. The kids don't go to private schools. And if you know the kids, well, that's one of the reasons I'm quite proud of myself. Because my kids so far aren't basket cases. They're kids you can sit down with. The elder one you can go out and have half a pint with and just chat. That elder one, Heather, was actually his wife Linda's from a previous marriage. But still, it seemed hard to think how any of us might embark on a chat with his offspring without saying, But your dad was a beetle. They've got to learn to live with it, he said unprompted. What can I do? Unmake myself? Turn the video backwards? They are Paul McCartney's kids. All we do is just try and treat it real normal. I don't feel famous. I know I am and sometimes it's good and I'm proud I am and all that. But in my ordinary day-to-day life, I'd like to just be the way people are. Just what I am. As if on cue, in walked Linda. Throughout the interview, I'd kept my tight questions casually by my side. Not once had Paul thought to look at them. Linda immediately picked them up and started reading through them. As the conversation moved to the book Shout by Philip Norman. Shite, as I call it by Norma Phillips. While Linda perused my questions and occasionally offered her own thoughts on the answers, Paul elaborated on his distaste for the recent best-selling biography. I'll come off as this very together guy, always got his finger on top of everything. The man with no problems. School, a doddle. Actually, I had murder getting through exams. I was the kid who was getting the cane. Just like John was. But Philip Norman, he takes me and makes me the very shrewd, always going to succeed guy. And John is the kind of cute, working class hero. In actual fact, though, John was just as shrewd and ambitious as I was. I kind of resent that. I know I'm not that. I know I've never been that. He seemed particularly aggrieved at the idea that he'd been personally cruel or vindictive to Stu Sutcliffe and Pete Best, the former Beatles who got left behind. Stu couldn't play bass he said flatly. I had a pure musical thing about it. What are we going to do about a bass player who can't play bass? The same, he said, with Pete Best. George Martin told us, your drummer can't drum. Get rid. What are we going to do? We knew he wasn't as good as what we wanted, so we got another drummer that we wanted. He was called Ringo. In saying as much, he revealed some of the naked ambition that had been part of the Beatles' driving force. But in that, he was no different from any other musician I'd come across. Whether it was Adamant, Kevin Rowland, 
Even the Who had shown no compunction about dropping their original drummer Doug Sandham the moment Keith Moon showed up. Would Paul Weller stand by the other members of the jam? Right now it seemed hard to believe otherwise, but hey, you never knew. McCartney wasn't quite done. The subject of shout provoked him to some genuine opening of the heart. Stu was a great guy, a lovely guy, and I didn't understand him, it's true. There's a lot of people in my life I haven't understood. I'm not the world's most psychic person. I make a lot of mistakes and I misread people. It was as close to a confession as I'd get. I had just about filled both C90s. I had the first proper interview with Paul McCartney since John Lennon had been shot, a three-hour exclusive, and so bad was I at time managing my questions I'd not even raised the subject of his partner's murder. George Martin walked in now to say in that clipped upper-class voice of his that he needed Paul to review a mix, and it was obvious that I was done for the day. The previous evening at home I'd wondered what I could bring for McCartney to autograph. My dad's old Beatles albums were all beaten up, I'd written on most of them as a five-year-old in a rather unsuccessful attempt at cataloguing them. And the reissued mid-60s singles, even those in picture sleeves, didn't seem appropriate. I wasn't sure the ink would hold. Well, because I was still reading it on the bus in the tube that day and I didn't have anything else, I proffered a copy of Shout. Paul declined the request. I'd rather not, if you don't mind, he said politely. Probably a little surprised that I'd asked, given how he just dissed the book to me on tape. Bring something else along another day. We'll see each other again, I'm sure. Awkwardly, I reminded him that we still had the photo session to take care of, that my friend Anthony had been patiently sitting in the waiting room these last three hours. McCartney promptly found another 20 minutes of his precious time. Anthony had no more formal training in the celebrity interview process than I did, and he quickly ran off some shots of Paul in the hallway, in the meeting room, and an additional few of him talking with George Martin. I wandered back to the jam studio while Anthony found himself invited into McCartney's control room to listen to a playback of the ex-Beatles' latest solo recordings. The album that would become Tug of War. To Anthony's amazement, Linda, a professional photographer herself, complimented him. Paul usually hates it when anyone except me takes his picture, but I could see he was really enjoying that. As he left the room, she gave Anthony a printed calendar of her own photos. I kept a couple of Beatles singles in my bag over the next week or so, before the jam vacated the air studios, in the expectation I'd run into Paul McCartney as effortlessly as I first had, and I could get his autograph in the process. I never met him again. One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the Support This Show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond lowercase. You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram, 
Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is onestepbeyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active.